testing. Okay, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, we're at uh, we're looking at uh, issues of the last days, the rebellious part of the last days, and the fact that people are rebellious. And there's 20 different ways to describe uh, people, literally all over the world. But we're seeing it here from Scripture, foretold, uh, prophesied, and now we're seeing it uh, being lived out. It's actually a great time to be alive. It is a great time to be alive. Some of the things that we have seen growing up, uh, especially as older people, we have seen growing up is hard to even imagine. Uh, a lot of us remember the, the, we thought radio was great, and then I had a little radio that uh, I hooked the uh, wire to the screen window on the outside, and uh, the antenna, and that way it would ground out there so I could pick up the, the uh, radio signals close it was a satellite thing I had and it was one of my prized possessions and then television came along and I remember when the first color TV came out and we all took an excursion from grade school to a guy's kid's house that just bought a color TV and we thought wow that's the greatest thing we've ever seen and then we we go through here and then all these wires and cords that went to telephones and now we can talk to somebody on the other side of the world uh, at no cost, and uh, back then it cost like $20 a minute to, to call something like that, so it's amazing what we have seen, but we've also seen the world go from bad to worse, just like it says it's going to do uh, in the passages that we've been studying. In the last days, when the last days hit, and you're able to identify them, yeah, there's some good pockets, there's some good uh, idea, there's some good, um, uh, there's some good, uh, uh, the people say there is uh, good things that happen, and that's part of the last days. But overall, things just keep headed downhill. So we don't need to be uh, depressed about it, but instead, looking up. I mean, look what the Lord has got promised for us, and that indicates it's drawing closer every day, uh, not just chronologically, but it's drawing closer every day spiritually because the world is hitting a low that was prophesied a long time ago. We are at 2 Timothy 3.10. We have looked at the 20 different things that uh, are characteristics of the last days. And they said people are holding to a form of godliness, but they have denied the power they, uh, thereof. Avoid such people as these. And then it goes on to, to tell us, ever learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. People prey on the weak. That's one of the facades they use of godliness. They look godly, but they're actually preying on the weak. There's the intellectualism that uh, goes on, the manipulation that they use in the process. And so then how do you handle it? See, the Bible gives us problems, but it also gives us solutions. How do you handle it? And that's verse 10. Verse 10 says to hang on like Timothy. Timothy is being, uh, he's been doing this and Paul is commending him, but he's also telling us how to deal with various issues that we run into. So before we begin, let's uh, take a moment or two for silent prayer, present ourselves in front of the throne of grace and ask indeed that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you. 
Father, once again, we thank you for your blessings, your test. We thank you for your opportunities. And Father, we thank you for your word that lets us to know the times that we are living in and what to look out for, but also you give us instructions as to what to do to counter these things. And so, Father, I pray that we'd be able to understand and remember and then be able to use these principles wisely as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.10, it says, But you followed. Now, Paul is writing Timothy, so he's saying, You, Timothy, you followed. And the word followed here is parakolutheo. Now, it's a compound word of para, which means alongside. Akolutheo uh, comes from akaluthos, and it means a follower or a companion. Uh, <clears throat> it... Um, it means one who is going in the same direction. A follower is one who's going in the same direction, not who's heading in another direction. Paul <coughs> is headed in the right direction. He knows it. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit has given him a little better insight. And he says, Timothy, you followed me. You imitated me. He'd written in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, to be an imitator of me just as I am of Christ. And so we look at these things and ask, are these things Christ-like? And he says, but you followed my teaching. These, uh, it's interesting uh, construction that is put together here because it says, you followed, you followed me. It's in a genitive, you followed of me. And then the next six things that follows here actually overlaps into the next verse. It puts a definite article in front of each one of these. So it says, you followed me, and then it says, the teaching. And so the way that does this is point out each one of these is specific, and each one of these has got its own identity to it. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today is what is the identity of these words that are found there. The word teaching, it says literally, the teaching. The daskalia is what is taught. It is frequently translated as doctrine. It is the, uh, uh, the subject found in 1 Timothy 1.10, different passages in chapter 4, 5, and 6 in, in 1 Timothy. And he said, you followed the teaching, the doctrine. Now, Paul's doctrine that he teaches is obviously biblical. He's being receiving revelation, he's writing it down, and he is revealing it, telling other people about it and teaching other people about it. And some people look at this and go, well, that's Paul's teaching. Well, te doctrine is, quite properly, the Word of God taught. It is not the Word of man established as dogma. That is a different thing. Doctrine comes directly from the Bible, and that's what we have to realize. Now, some things we, we find out that are, are held as doc, are, as, uh, they're held as doctrine, they're actually not. They're just opinions. But whenever you find something stated and stated clearly, that's where you build doctrine from. So he said, you followed me, then he says the doctrine. And so the doctrine always has to be stacked up against what does God's Word say? Sadly, a lot of churches have uh, added in things that are not really uh, there. The, you know, the doctrine is, 
is uh, you understand doctrine systematically. You understand how verses fit together. That's part of what we do and part of how we study it. But it is all connected in to what does the Bible say. So he says, you followed the doctrine, then the conduct. Now, <clears throat> conduct is actually a manner of life. It's the word agoge. It's only used one time. It comes from the word ago that means to lead. And it properly denotes a training or a discipline. And then the course of life that's taken as a result of that. And that's why a manner of life is a good translation of this word agoge. It's only used once. And so we, we kind of get an idea that Paul said... Okay, you followed what I did, the doctrine. Okay, that's, that's the teaching, the stuff that you put in your head, used to evaluate different things. But manner of life has to do with the actions that are taken as a result of it. And followed here, see, to follow along behind someone, that's so very important because Paul, Paul's saying you followed me, but only as I follow Christ. And that's what he has pointed out to Timothy. And then he says purpose. Purpose is prothesis. Uh, means a setting forth. It's interesting this word is used of the showbread. Uh, the table of showbread. A setting forth. Something in front of something else. And it's used of, a, of the purposes of God. To place beforehand. Thesis is to theme, which means to place. Pra means beforehand, to place beforehand. So it's a purpose in that it's somewhere you want to go. It's a, it's a goal you want to accomplish. And he says <coughs> the purpose and then faith, which is pistis, the normal word for faith. And again, faith is always about the object. And he says the faith. So there, there is a particular object of faith that we are to focus on, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Then he says, the love. See, the definite articles here with all of these things. So it's setting them all apart distinctly. And uh, agape is a hard word to define. It's uh, better described. Uh, about the best definition I've heard of it is to do what's right and best when you don't feel like it. That seems to be the best definition. That is, love is patient, kind, gentle. It does not brag, even when you don't feel like it. So it's a pretty good description of what agape love is, is all about. Uh, then it says perseverance. Perseverance is hupomone. And this word we've seen many times. Mone means to live or abide, and hupo means under. So it's a patience towards circumstances. Uh, similar to 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul writes to Timothy, and let no one look down on your speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. He says, let no one look down on that just because you're young, Timothy. He says, you're going to have to lead. You don't lead by being an authoritarian. You lead by example. And that's what he taught him in 1 Timothy. And now he is saying, you did this. You followed it. You did the things that you were supposed to do. So, the first point is that true followers of Messiah may still lack great faith. True followers of Messiah may still lack a great faith. Sometimes people want to hold things up. Well, if they're really saved, they wouldn't do this. Uh, we were talking about David at breakfast yesterday, and David is, is a fly in the ointment of everybody that, that buys into that. 
because uh, look at the promise made to David when he was young man. Look at the covenant made with David, and then look at how many things he messed up. I mean, that is a life of messing up, is it not? But it is a life of looking to the Lord in the middle of all of the problems that he created for the most part. So Matthew 8, verse 5 to 10. <clears throat> I love this passage. This is I, I love them all, but I really like this passage. And it says, <clears throat> And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. To my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Okay. There were believers in Israel. They'd already been some converted. And then look at this Gentile centurion. They came up and said, No, you don't have to come to my house. You can do it for right where you are. You don't need to. And he goes on to say, and that, that servant was healed right there at that moment. And so this is a, something to remember. We Christians are born again. We are made new creations. We're still carrying a sin nature, and it takes a lifetime to battle that sin nature to try and get it under the under the control it needs to be under. So it's a it's an ongoing battle, and uh, whenever we think we've got there, we remember those verses: "He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall." I mean, you just got to be careful when you think you got it all figured out and worked out. Uh, so, anyway, great faith is uh, may not be found in every believer at all. The second point is we would have to live his path, the path of Christ, an intensity of sacrifice all the time to even get close to deserving Christ. And thus we're undeserving. We are totally undeserving of Messiah. The only way to remotely be deserving is if we started out our life and we lived a perfect life. And then it still wouldn't be enough. We still would not be deserving because we can't do that. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how many people could actually make a claim that they had done that all of their life? Uh, that would be probably a mark of arrogance didn't the pharisees try to do that whenever they approached christ they tried to talk to him as an equal or a superior instead of when he said ask and you'll receive that's to ask from an inferior to a superior iteo is the word used there so uh matthew 10 verse 34 to 42 do not think i came to bring peace on the earth i did not come to bring peace but a sword I came to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me 
is not worthy. So who's deserving of Christ? He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who's found his life will lose it, and he who's lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I think the writer of Hebrews may have known that when he said in Hebrews 6.10, God is not so unjust as to forget the good that you've done in ministering to the saints. We would have to live a perfect life, all of our life, to remotely deserve salvation. But we don't. It is all about grace. Now we are called to press on. Notice that that Paul writes Timothy and he says, You followed, aorist tense, past time. This has been Timothy's life since he's been there at Ephesus and he's been teaching, he was installed as the pastor. This is who he is. <clears throat> and so... We're to press on. We're applying this to us now. Timothy did it. Here is an example. He was the example Paul called him to be. And he set an example for us. Not just that little church there at at Ephesus. Well, we're supposed to press on with doctrine. Now, how do we press on with doctrine? First of all, we've got to know it. We have to learn it. Make it a part of us. And hopefully make it enough of us that we don't have to dig deep to even think about it. It just becomes a part of of who we are. Because we need to press on with doctrine. Why do we need to do that? First point here, and this comes out of 1 Timothy. This is what he wrote him about in the previous epistle. And to identify the valid use of the law. Let's see where he uses the word doctrine. Because that's going to teach us what he was talking about. It says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, correctly. You use the Mosaic law correctly. And then it says, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, i.e. one that is following it, but for those who are lawless, rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's our word teaching there, didaskalia, so the word for doctrine. So he says there are certain things that are contrary to it. We have to realize it, and that's why the law is still there. It's a tutor to tell us we need a Messiah to lead us to Christ. It's also, we're to press on, so we can identify false doctrine. We need to know doctrine. We need to know what it is. We need to be, again, a part of us. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Just like God has doctrine revealed through his word, demons have doctrines that they have put together and they... uh, They have revealed it. They reveal it to unbelievers. They reveal it to those that they have uh, oftentimes uh, 
moved inside up, possessed, and they reveal information to them, and then it gets out and other people listen to it. So believers can be influenced by doctrine of demons. Now what might be one of those doctrine of demons? Uh, Jesus is just a man. Just a man. Not God who became man. He's just a man. Oh, and he's a man that ascended to Godhood. That's doctrine of demons. Nothing else but because it's in total contradiction of the doctrine of God became flesh and dwelt among us glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Total contradiction to it. We need to press on with doctrine in order to be nourished from 1 Timothy 4.6 which says in pointing out these things to the brethren you'll be a good servant of Christ constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. The word sound going with doctrine there basically means healthy. What is good for the building up of your soul, for the building up of the body? When you see that word sound, that basically is what it's talking about. Healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine has got to be biblically based, first of all, because it's that's how your, your soul becomes healthy. And he says... Constantly nourished. So when you know the truth, the truth will set you free, and you know the doctrine, then you're able to, to listen to somebody or a news station or a documentary or something like that, and you go, well, that's just wrong. Why do you know it's wrong? Because it's in contradiction to what the Word says. And that's how doctrine is established, and that's how we live by it. That will guide us. Doctrine is to be our guide, is part of who we are, and that's knowing what God wants us to do, how he wants us to think, speak, and act. That It's really pretty simple, but that's what he wants us to do. Doctrine, we're called to pay attention to it. Here's 1 Timothy 4 once again. It says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and doctrine. In verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and your doctrine. This is a warnings for pastors. Pay attention. What type of doctrine that you are that that you believe is doctrine, and pay attention to the doctrine that you teach others with. He said, persevere in these things. Ah. For as you do this, you'll ensure salvation, both for yourself and those who hear you. Now, ensure salvation. This is salvation in the Christian life because there is a deliverance from the penalty for sin. There's also a deliverance from the power of sin. And this is the power of sin that it is talking about. We're, we're, Paul's written multiple passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6. You can talk, talk about Galatians chapter 5 where he's talked about the war with the flesh that's continually ongoing. Romans 6, 6 and 7. Over and over again he says, we believers, Christians, saved by grace through faith, have a constant ongoing battle uh, with this flesh. And also with doctrine 5.17, he says uh, to honor those who teach doctrine. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, learning doctrine and teaching it, because doctrine's the word of God taught. Also, we're called to be honorable. 
so other people don't attack it. From 1 Timothy 6.1 Be honorable because what happens when a person professes one thing and does something else? I, I, I know we don't notice any of that on television. Maybe some of our politicians say one thing and do something else. Well, we don't like that, do we? Do we like to treat other people the way you want to be treated? Do you want to be treated that way? You can't fix what they do, but you can control to some degree what you do. So be honorable because when people lose their honor and integrity, then guess what happens? Whatever they stand for, whatever they profess comes under question. First Timothy 6.1 Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And what's best, what is sound doctrine? This is one of the more important verses that you'll find to tell us how do you identify sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 6.3 If anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, healthy words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. See, true doctrine, sound doctrine is built on the words of Christ. And that's something we have to remember. Sometimes when people talk about true doctrine, there's several books out written by different scholars over the course of several centuries that say things that become sound doctrine. That's the title of one of them. Uh, And some of the things that become sound doctrine, I think is just totally heretical. According to that book, they said sound doctrine, and part of what they do is look at how is people viewed it over the course of time. They're analyzing the scripture from, from various viewpoints of various preachers, various theologians, and they look at that and they put these all together, and then they come up with the conclusion, this must be sound doctrine because so many people have agreed with it. Well, five out of six people on this planet so far agree with Satan. So it doesn't mean it's got anything to do with with numbers or anything like that. It's got everything to do with uh, what what does the Lord have to say. Uh, Oftentimes in seminaries today, one of my big bones to pick with them, is that whenever somebody's going to write a paper, then they get a whole bunch of commentaries and a whole bunch of books. And you have to have books to study with to one degree or another. But they leave, what then does the scripture say? And it's more about quotations. I've, I've got books at my house with many, many pages of footnotes and citations and that very seldom does it have a scripture verse in there. It's all about, well, this guy said in 1765 that that's what this verse meant. Well, so what? What does this verse say? Now, you can use commentaries in a good way because sometimes they've got historical insights that you're not going to find other places. That's true. Sometimes if it's an exegetical commentary, they may have insights into the particular words that are used in a passage. They have a value. I'm not saying they're useless, but indeed you have to be careful with what you're doing and stick with what the scriptures have to say. Now, see, we're to press on. And this starts with true doctrine. We are to press on with godly conduct. Uh, 
Now, there's not any subpoints underneath that because there are a whole lot of other passages that are that identify this this quality. These are courses of action. This is a word used one time in the New Testament, and here it is. And it's kind of a summary word, in a way, for these other qualities. It's a godly conduct. What is godly conduct? Well, you've got the right doctrine. You're living the right doctrine. You've got a godly purpose. That's the next one showing up. And you're living that. Godly conduct is a walk in faith. So it kind of puts this whole thing together and says, what does your Christian life uh, look like from the inside out? And that's what godly conduct is about. Oftentimes the word eusebia is used. And that is a word that means a reverence. You have a reverence for the Lord God Almighty. Uh, it's sad that reverence is, is leaving. Have you noticed that? People don't have reverence for anyone or anything. And not that we should have for people, but there should be respect for offices, whether or not the people are worthy of respect. There should be. And why, would, why that? Because God established authority. Okay, So there should be a respect for an office. President of the United States, you might not like what he did, but there should be a respect for the office. The Supreme Court, there should be a respect for the office. And you are free to disagree with any of the conclusions they reach anywhere over the course of, of time and history. And the same thing with legislators. The same type of, there should be a respect for the office. And if they don't respect the office, they need to be replaced. And we have the freedom in this country to, to do that. But there should be a respect for authority that goes along with that. These are, these are just, in a lot of ways, common sense things. What is godly conduct? We are also to press on with a godly purpose. Now, what is uh, the chief purpose we're to press on with? God's eternal purpose in Jesus Christ. Interesting where these words are used, isn't it? Because they just point out things to us very clearly. Ephesians 3.11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father had an eternal purpose. What was that eternal purpose? One known since eternity past, since he has no beginning, he has no end. What is it? What did he carry out? Substitutionary death. Took our place on a cross. Lived in a set an example of how we should, we should live in godly conduct. And he says, this was in accordance, what the Lord did. And it's also, in Ephesians 3, is kind of the introduction to the doctrine of the church, one of the major passages that's found there. So the church didn't sneak up on God. He had already planned for it. And it was already coming, and he knew what was going to happen. He laid out the end from the beginning. He knew that the Jews would reject him at the first advent. He not only knew that they would, he knew all the reasons why they would. And he still went ahead with the plan. Because we, he, he knew us before he created angels or before he created man. He knew man was going to fall. You know, when Adam ate from that tree... What have you done, Adam? Have you eaten from that tree that I told you not to eat? He knew that before he created Adam. What Adam was going to do. So that wasn't for God's benefit to find out. It was for Adam's benefit. And he already had a plan in place 
to handle that because he knew Adam and all of his progeny were going to need a savior. So he had planned for that, an eternal purpose in what? Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. When you see the word Christ, it's Messiah. If you see it as Messiah, it kind of sheds a, a, a bigger light on the whole meaning of that word. Christos is the same as Mashiach in the Hebrew. It's the Messiah. Now, <clears throat> the godly purpose is to be true to the Lord. In Acts 11.23, this word purpose is used. When it, then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart is our purpose, a purposeful heart to remain true to the Lord. That purpose is to be true to the Lord. That's what, what our life should be about. And see, if our goals are to love God and love one another, we'll be true to the Lord as long as we stay at those. Because you can't love Him without being true to Him. With a godly purpose, we're called to chart a course to follow. Acts 27 is kind of the uh, root meaning of this word. Because it indicates to chart a course or a path to follow. Uh, it's used in here with, a, with um, a boat going across the water. And it says, And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose. Interesting placement of the word. They knew where they were going. They thought they were headed that way and they thought they got there. So they charted a course. So here's a picture of a purpose being charting a course. So uh, was it they say that if you uh, if you don't plan, if you don't have a plan, you plan to fail or something to that degree? Have a purpose to your life. And then once you chart a course and you have a purpose to your life, check to see if it's aligned with God's purpose. Check to see if it's aligned with God's purpose. 2 Timothy 1.9 He gets right back in here to Timothy. It says, Who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Messiah Jesus from all of eternity. So we check to see if our purpose that we chart for our life has something to do with God's purpose that he has charted for our life. Then we find the, our will and his will coming together because it's all about our will changing to meet, meet his will, not his will changing to meet ours. And so it comes together. And then you realize in this purpose that God will work all things together for good. Romans 8, 28. I think we've... How many verse? How many people have that verse in their house? I mean, it's just constant reminder. And we know that God causes all things together to to work together for good. To who? To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. What's His purpose? Become Christ-like. What's his purpose? He wants you to have all the rewards you can possibly have. He wants you to have a time in eternity with, with his son and the rest of the royal family. He wants, that. he wants that for all of us. And he'll work it together for good. But the key is to those that love God. 
Sometimes people say, well, he didn't work it together for good in my life, but then they're blaming God about everybody and everything and all their problems and everything they did. And so does that really count as loving God? Turn around the love for God and what happens? Things start working together for good. That's what happens. I'm sure all of us can look back at our life and go, oh, that was really rough. What we went through, that was a tough period of time and, and all that. And Maybe we were in tune with the Lord. Maybe we weren't in tune with the Lord. And if we weren't in tune with the Lord, and you find out whenever you get in tune with the Lord, things start fitting in place. The puzzle pieces start coming together. You start filling in the inside of that picture and not just the outside portions of it. So <clears throat> realizing that he'll work all things together for good. He did, he did with me, quite honestly, or I wouldn't be standing here today. So that's just the way it is with, with all of us. We can make some really bad and stupid decisions along the way. But when you get realigned and your eyes fixed back on Jesus, then guess what? He'll get you back to the line that you need to be, need to be walking. We're called to press on in faith. In faith. Again, faith is always about the merit of the object. It has all the merit. We press on in faith. That can can you do you know what's gonna happen tomorrow? No. No. We know we we uh, we know we we might have an appointment tomorrow. Loved ones may have an appointment tomorrow. We know certain things that are on the calendar and on the schedule. And I I think college the biggest thing about college did to me is tell me to that your schedules are a good idea but not necessarily the way things are going to happen because they get turned around really fast and we're called to, to walk by faith though because we we don't know how all the details are tomorrow but we know that the lord is there we're called by faith to live righteously before god and it requires a life of faith. To live righteously. To know what is right. Know what is wrong. And say by the grace of God. Tomorrow. Today. I want to do it right. That's, that's honoring to God. And to be able to go to the Lord and say. You know what if I get out of line. Would you show me real fast. So I, so I don't head off in the wrong direction. And maybe take somebody with me. Would you show me real fast. And that's the type of spirit that he wants. He, that's, that's a humble spirit that doesn't, doesn't approach life with, I know it all. Okay, It approaches life with, he knows it all. Without faith, uh, Hebrews 10.38 says, My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If we want to live in righteousness, it requires faith. And he said, if we shrink away, then there's no pleasure there. Now, this is in direct contrast to Paul. It says, we do things, seek to do the things that are pleasing in his eyes. Okay? What are the things pleasing in his eyes? Not sinning is right at the top of the list. Without faith, you'll never please God. Now, see that Hebrews 10.38 is the introduction to the next chapter. 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible 
to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Does God have something for you? Like eternal life? Does he have something for you? See, that's a rewarder of those who seek him. And you go to God with faith that says he holds eternity in his hands and he said, you believe in my son, you'll have eternity there with me forevermore. This will be a great time together. Do you believe that? A lot of people say they believe a lot of things about heaven and the afterlife and everything else. But when it comes down to it, they don't. And they're scared. Because, see, love casts out fear. And you you realize that God loves you. And you start loving him back with that same intensity. Then, Then what happens? The fear of what happens after your last breath disappears. It goes away. And that should be the way we want it. That should be the way that we want it. Faith has to be tested to gain endurance. Now, a lot of times I open up, anybody tested this last week? Okay. How about, did you enjoy your testing last week? (laughs) Don't see a lot of hands going up (laughs) on that one. Did you enjoy it? Well, what does the Bible tell us to do? I love James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren. That When I was first started studying in seminary, and before I'd just blow through the Bible reading it, and then when I got to seminary, I started studying these things. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, I'm in seminary studying this, and I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> because... Pressures just get doubled and mounted and everything else uh, when, when you're in seminary. When, when you encounter various trials, why can you consider it joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance? Ah, so Lord, you got a purpose in this, don't you? you got a real purpose in this. And let endurance, say that's perseverance, hang on, let it have its perfect or mature result so you can be mature and complete lacking in nothing our testing is for our good it is designed by the Lord and he knew it in eternity past so these tests go on they are tests that are common to all of mankind in fact Peter writes about it and he says don't be surprised like something unusual is happening to you Because the same type of thing is going on with other brethren around the world and they're passing it. So don't think that, oh, this has come my way and nobody's ever ever faced it before. But he says you need to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God because he gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given him. And let him ask in faith without any doubting. See, look at, I mean, James just cuts nobody any slack when he does. does he? he just considered all joy. Okay, okay, Jews, okay, Gentiles, considered all joy when you encounter, all, when you encounter this because it's all for your benefit. It is all for good. That's what it is for. And when you ask, don't doubt. Don't doubt. Because the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Because we know if we ask, and that's humbly ask, and you humbly ask by asking in accordance with revealed truth, 
And you don't come saying, oh Lord, I'm going to get humble because I need a new fill in the blank there. Lord, I'm going to try to humble myself and look good before you so you'll answer this prayer. Well, and he knows. He, he writes about that in chapter 4. You ask because you want to spend it on your own evil motives. So he, he can see right through all that stuff. He says, come in front of me. You, if you want wisdom, he'll give it to you. And my experience has been it's not till exactly at the second you need it at times. You're going to have an encounter with somebody. You need to encourage them. And they are hurting real bad and you have no clue what to say. No clue what to say. And so what do you do? You pray for wisdom and you show up. And the Lord takes over. That's what happens whenever you submit to him. And, and it happens over and over and over again. We find that we're supposed to press on in patience toward people. That thing keeps coming up, doesn't it? Patience toward people. When you, have you ever thought about somebody giving you a bad time and a bunch of static and you just, did the thought ever go through your mind? I'm getting a lot of eternal rewards out of this. Honestly, it's not ever gone through mine <laughs> till, till just then. It's not what you're, you're thinking about. How can I defend myself? How can I counter the argument? We're thinking of all the ways to protect ourselves instead of going, you know, if I can be patient with this person, guess what? God will not forget it. Be kind and gracious and pass it on. See, God set the standard with this. Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Whenever we understand the justice of God, and when we get justice is you get what you deserve. And what do we all deserve? Death. That's what we all deserve. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Leviticus 10 is a good example of that. When Aaron's two sons went and got strange fire to start the uh, Levitical offerings. They pulled the fire from the wrong place in direct, direct contradiction to what God said. You get the fire here and you start it here and you offer up the offerings. So what did God do? He took them both out. Nadab and Abihu took them both out on that first day of the Levitical offerings. Why? Because they didn't pay attention. They didn't pay attention. Well, now, is that unfair? The devil would say it's unfair, wouldn't he? What is it? Just. It is fair. That's the way God rendered the justice. He started this all off. And uh, Nadab and Abihu started the wrong way. And they got what they deserved to show the Jews. Yeah, that's what justice is. Be careful when you start hollering for that. And why did David holler for grace and mercy so much? Because mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve at all. Big difference in those in those. God set the standard of patience toward people and thus it's the fruit of the, part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's uh, uh, part of the fruit of the Spirit. So when we see how do we handle people by means of the Holy Spirit at work in our life. 
And if we think about that, we want to we want to be patient toward the people in our life. And you can bet it is going that's going to be tested. One of the big tests of this life is how do we deal with other people. Well, we have uh, hit a stopping point here. So uh, we'll be uh, picking this up here next week and moving on through the rest of this chapter. Let's pray. The Father, thank you again for your grace, your love, your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. We know we can be a mess from time to time and maybe more than just time to time. But Father, we also know that you love us, you care for us, your kindness is amazing. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for it. We pray that uh, your grace won't run out on us and you'll continue to discipline us as we need it and be able to uh, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.